0: Section one of the Keeper of the Bees This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Keeper of the Bees by Jean Stratton Porter. Chapter one. His Own Man James Lewis MacFarlane. The bearer of this name swung his feet to the floor and sat up suddenly, cupping his big hands over his knees to steady himself. For the past hour, between periods of half-conscious drowsiness, he'd been hearing the verdict that men in authority were pronouncing upon men over whose destinies they held control, but it had not appealed to him that his own case might come under consideration. That morning he had sat for an hour in the sunshine in front of the huge hospital where our country is trying to restore men who had been abroad to take their part in the war. Of late he'd been realizing that in his fight for health he was waging a losing battle— he had not been able to combat the shrapnel wound in his left breast with the same success with which he had fought the enemy so he had resolved to test his strength he'd gotten up and started down the road to learn precisely how far his legs would carry him he'd forgotten to reckon on the fact that going down a mountain is much easier than climbing one so he'd gone on until his knees began to waver and he found his strength exhausted he'd rested a while and then turned back but the upward trip had been slow business, painful work, work that set a cold perspiration running and a gnawing fire burning in his left breast, while the bandages over his shoulders and around his body had become things of torment. The hot sun of California had beaten down on him until he was panting for breath. He was forced repeatedly to stop and to seek a resting place on any projecting stone or dry embankment of the mountainside." His tired eyes were wearied with the panorama of brilliant colour that lay stretched everywhere around him, the green of the live oak, the bright holly berries, the pinkish-white urns of the manzanita, the purplish velvet of the pitcher sage, clotted blue lavender cobwebs of the thistle sage. The only things he did see were the frequent heads of Indian warrior, and he saw them because they were like wounds on the earth, as red as real blood as red as the blood that had soaked many a battlefield, dripped in many a hospital, that he saw every day on the dressings that were removed from his side. He had seen so much blood that anything that reminded him of it was nauseating, so he turned from the gorgeous flower, eagerly painting the mountainside, and looked up to the blue of the sky. But looking toward the sky only more clearly defined the rough path he must follow— There came to his mind a passage that he had heard his father read, from his pulpit on Sabbath mornings, with the Burr of Scotch, that a generation of our country had not eliminated. "'I will lift mine eyes to the hills, from whence cometh my help.' He was lifting his eyes to the hills, but no help came. He wondered whether this was because he was obeying the dictates of other men, or whether it was because he had forgotten God." In his childhood his father and mother had taught him to pray and to believe that his prayers would be answered. When he'd gone out to serve his country for some inexplicable reason he'd stopped praying and concentrated all his forces on fighting. There were atrocities that had been committed against men of his race and blood in the beginning of the war that drove all men of Scottish ancestry and sympathies a trifle wild. He had reached the war period, one of the gentlest of men, but he had embarked in the venture that other men of our country of different ancestry felt was freeing the world from tyranny, without outrage in his breast, a feeling that was shared by all men of the race and country of his people. Things had happened to one certain band of Scots that no man having a drop of Scottish blood in his veins could ever, or wanted to, forget. Under the stress of this feeling, the lad whose mother had always lovingly referred to him as my Jamie... "'forgot her teachings and her God, "'and went out to see how much personal vengeance "'he could wreak upon the men who had wounded "'the heart of all Scotland, "'deeper than the exigencies of ordinary warfare "'need wound the heart of a nation. "'He had gone for vengeance, "'and he had revenged himself thoroughly on many an enemy. "'Then the hour had come when a ragged sliver "'of filth encrusted iron had entered his breast "'and poisoned his blood. "'After weeks on the borderland, "'he dragged back to his feet And now he carried with him two wounds that would not heal, one in his heart, that the world could not see, and one on his breast, over which doctors and nurses vainly labored. When it was definitely settled that he could not go back to service, he was sent home. There another wound was added to the already deep ones that were torturing him. During the three years of his absence, the frail little mother, eaten with fear and anxiety for her only son, had made her crossing, and his father, always dependent upon her, had not long survived. The small property had been sold to pay for their resting places, and nothing remained in all this world that belonged to him, neither relative nor fireside. Even his friends had scattered, and there was nothing for him but to remain a ward of the government, until such time as he was pronounced able to begin life again for himself. In recognition of valiant service, indicated by a couple of medals and a service bar pinned over the wound he carried, He'd been sent to California, where it was hoped that the brilliant sunshine, the fruits in the clean salt air, the eternal summer of a beneficent land, would work the healing that the physicians had been unable to bring about. He'd been given the benefit of the best place there was to send men in his condition, the mountain resort Arrowhead Springs, high on a mountain covered with the foliage of every tree, bush and vine, native to such a location, where the air was perfumed with flowers and full of birdsong, The government had taken and had made into a great hospital, and the reason for the location was that at this point nature brought to the surface a stream of boiling hot water, water so hot that it was not possible to thrust a hand into it, water that boiled from some cavern below where the unquenched fires that are always burning in the heart of the earth flamed their reddest and the streams came up with the tang of sulphur and many chemicals, and with unvarying heat year after year. The springs were piped through the hospital, where all their medicinal properties were turned upon the men who, like Jamie MacFarlane, must be healed of stubborn wounds before they could return home to take up a man's work in the affairs of our land. As he struggled up the mountain that morning the perspiration streaked his cheeks, while his knees wavered and his white hands clutched at any tree or shrub that offered support, James Macfarlane was thinking. He was thinking fast and thinking deeply. He was wondering, since one year at these boiling mineral springs had done him no good whatever, whether another year would accomplish what the first had failed in doing. He was wondering if he were not weaker, less of a man than he had been a year ago. He was wondering how long the government was going to keep him at these springs when their water did him no good. He knew of the bitter denunciations that were being made all over the country of those in charge of caring for our returned soldiers." He knew of the red tape, the graft, and the slowness involved in reaching the boys with the treatment that they needed, and which should have been accorded them with all the speed that was used in starting them on their perilous venture. He knew there was bitterness in the heart of almost every wounded man on this point. There was poignant bitterness in his own heart. So many weeks had been wasted, so many months had passed before decision had been made as to what was to be done, and how it was to be done, and where it was to be done— So much had been taken for granted, and so little efficiently accomplished after peace had been declared. In his enforced moments of rest he kept lifting his eyes to the sky. He could not look at the sky without his thoughts climbing very high, and sometimes that morning they almost skirted the foot of the throne. He realized that he would have given anything in this world if he could have gone home and knelt at the knees of his mother, laid his head on her lap, and tried the one thing that he had not yet tried, just the plain old-fashioned thing of asking God for the help he'd not been able to secure from man, and so at last he had reached the palms and roses, the loquats and oranges, and the grape-covered slopes, where cultivation had begun to provide food for those who lived on the mountaintop. He looked at the bloom-laden orchards almost with distaste. He was so tired. The air was sickeningly sweet with the penetrant and enduring perfume. He thought with impatience that he would be glad if his eyes might rest upon some spot where a blood-red flare would not strike them to bitter memory, for persistently around the rocks of the mountainside, close to the spots of cultivation in which each tree was rooted, there blazed the flame of the Indian warrior. So he had at last dragged up the driveway and up the front steps where he'd done a thing that was not customary. All the grounds and the side verandas were for the men, but disabled soldiers were not supposed to drape themselves over the reed Davenports near the big entrance doors. There happened to be a Davenport standing under a broad window at one side of the entrance that offered him the first solution of a resting place. He glanced at several automobiles he did not recognize as he climbed the steps, then he headed straight for the lounge and stretched himself on it, where for a time he lay unconscious of what was going on around him. As he became rested, voices on the inside of the window at first were only voices, and then, as his heart quieted and the burning in his side eased and his tired limbs relaxed, he realized that name after name was being read from a list, and each name represented a man whose case was being discussed, and what was eventually to become of him was being decided upon. But he had not realized as they went down the J's and the K's and the L's that M was coming soon. He had been in the hospital so long. He was so accustomed to his room, to his nurses, to the routine, and the men he knew, that the place was home, the only home on earth he had. Everyone had been kind. He had no fault to find with the doctors or the nurses. They had done their best, and he had done his best, but the truth remained that he was no better, that lately doubts had arisen as to whether he were even as well as he'd been when he came. And then, with all the suddenness of an unexpected blow, clear on his ears came his own name in that cold, impersonal tone of businessmen transacting an affair of business with an eye single to the welfare of the greatest good to the greatest number. He did not recall ever having heard his name spoken in precisely such tones before. It made him feel as if he were not a man but merely an object, and then he realized that the matter under discussion was the disposal of that particular object. "'He heard his place of enlistment, his war service, his awards, "'a description of his wounds, recited in such a monotonous tone "'that he realized it was being droned from a book, "'and then a brisker voice inquired, "'How long has MacFarlane been here?' "'The answer came, a little more than a year. "'Then the question, have the springs done him any good? "'Is he better?' "'Then the answer, not so well. "'His wound is stubborn, and in spite of all we can do it refuses to heal.' The sweat of Jamie's exertion had dried up on his body, but it broke out again with the next question. Is he tubercular? And the answer was, no, not yet, but he is in a condition where at any minute tuberculosis might develop. There never was more fertile ground for it. Jamie McFarland sat gripping his knees and licking his dry lips and waiting to hear the verdict. It came in few words. Send him to Camp Kearney. For a minute, the red of the Indian warrior flamed before the eyes of the listening man until he could only see red. For a minute, hot anger seared his body in scorching protest. He'd heard them say that he was not tubercular, but that he was fine breeding ground for the dread disease. Now they were planning to send him into a place where every man either had the plague or was so near it that he'd been sent to take the risk of contracting it, as was proposed in his case. It was not fair. It was not just he had enlisted eagerly and early. He was not a drafted man. he had fought to the limit of his power. He had taken whatever came uncomplainingly. The medals he wore attested his daring. He would march into that room, and he would tell those doctors what he thought of them and their callous decision. He tried to rise and found that he was too weak to stand on his feet, and then he heard the doctor who'd read off the names, voicing a protest in his behalf. I can hardly feel that it's fair to send a man of MacFarlane's achievements and in his fertile condition to what is admittedly a place for the tubercular. The other voice answered, If a year here has left him not so well as he was, why hope that another year will do more than keep him in the place of a physically better man who might come in and make a recovery if he had MacFarlane's chance? At the cold justice of that statement, Jamie MacFarlane sank on the lounge and lay back on the pillow, and of how long he lay there he kept no count. He only knew that the voices were going on inside of the window, and that men were being judged, that hopeless cases were being sent to what appealed to him as a hopeless place, while those who had a chance were being given the greatest opportunity to recover. And that was fair. That was just. But being of Scottish extraction, having been born with fight in his veins— and an eternal and steadfast love of the mountains and the stars and the sky and the sea and his fellow men, he decided that he would no longer be any man's man or the man of any government. He was alone and derelict. He would be his own man. If he must die, why die in Camp Kearney, where the greatest plague that ravages humanity gnawed in the breast of every doomed man, without time for mature deliberation, without any preparation whatever— James Lewis MacFarlane reached up and gripped the window sill with one hand, with the other laid hold on an arm of the couch and brought himself to a standing posture. He retraced his steps down to the roadway, and there he turned to the right, which faced him toward the north, and with slow, careful steps he began his great adventure. End of section one read by Sandra